Welcome to Borderlandia, the podcast where we embark on a journey to explore and celebrate the cultural heritage of the borderlands. I'm your host, Alex Lapierre, and I'm thrilled to have you join us on this immersive exploration of the rich tapestry that makes up our binational region. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Lapierre. I am the founder, the co-founder of Borderlandia, a binational organization committed to building public understanding uh, of the borderlands. And today's episode of the podcast, Borderlandia podcast, we have a special guest, Jack Williams uh, of the Center for Spanish Colonial Archaeology. And today's topic, uh, we'll be talking about kind of a, a little known or lesser known subject in kind of the the history of the Southwest, uh, particularly of the Spanish colonial era. And we'll be talking about the massacre at the Yuma crossing. Jack, welcome. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear about the phrase massacre at the Yuma crossing? Well, it was certainly a massacre from the point of view of the Spaniards. From the point of view of the Quetzal, the Yuma-speaking people, it was, of course, a great military victory. So... It all depends on one's perspective, but there's there's no doubt that the creation of two mission Pueblo colonies along Colorado River in 1780 both ended in disaster. And that was followed by a, a series of military engagements that went on for about three or four years, popularly known as the Quetzal War. And the Spaniards would return again in the 18, well, in the 1820s, they were by that point, independent Mexico, but there was a, another attempt to take control of the Yuma crossing, but it was uh, basically called off because of a Yaqui uprising. And um, so it was only during that brief moment of 1780s that the roadway was clear and that there was a real um, supply line connection between Alta California and Sonora. Okay, so that was really the, the heart at the, the founding of these kind of mission Pueblo settlements was the, the strategic geographic setting of Yuma. Yes, and there are a number of reasons for that. And I, I sent you some maps that show some of the strategic significance of things. The basic reality was that north of Yuma, it was extremely difficult to cross the Colorado River. And south of Yuma, there was a huge, vast marshland that went all the way from where near the international border is today, all the way down to the mouth of the Colorado River. So there was this one narrow area that you could effectively transport across to get across the Colorado River. Now, the two crossings that were important, the one was at La Purisima Concepcion, and that's where the freeway and the railroad goes today. The second crossing was to the north of there, about 10 miles at a place called San Pedro y San Pablo. And it was important because the river broke into three channels at that point. And there were vados, that, you know, which are you know, river crossings that connected the um, what is today the Arizona side with the California side. So it was another place you could easily get across. 
So the Spaniards were extremely aware of the strategic importance of the place. And um, making it more complicated was the existence of vast sand dunes uh, that, that basically were found close to Yuma on the California side in particular, um, that made it, made it essential to control the Yuma crossing if you were going to reliably bring people and resources through there. And in the mind of the Comandante General, uh, Theodore de Croix, his goal pretty clearly was to link the Presidio chain in California up to the Presidio chain in, in Sonora. So the idea would be that you might go from Altar or Tucson to um, the Yuma Crossing, where there'd be a Presidio outpost, and then you could go travel on to San Diego. So that was the strategic importance. Now, this whole plan was going pretty well in the wake of the first Anza expedition, which had, of course, um, led to the, the opening of this route. But the thing that was unforeseen was the American Revolution. And because of the American Revolutionary War, Spain joined on the side of the United States in that war. And there was an, uh, an order that went out to all the military commands to stop offensive operations and to concentrate on raising whatever funds they could to contribute to the main war effort against Great Britain. And so they nearly called off the plan to build a military outpost in Yuma. And then Father Garces, who was famous explorer, Franciscan priest, he basically persuaded Theodore de Croix that, that he should reconsider and came up with a scheme which Croia ultimately thought was, was a good one, which was to combine the functions of La Purisima Concepcion and San Pablo y San Pablo of being a kind of military outpost town and being a mission at the same time. He also believed, uh, at Garza's suggestion, that the Indians should not be brought together to live under tight-knit Spanish control in a reduction. So the Indians were going to continue to live largely in their own villages, and they were supposed to be receiving spiritual and, and other kinds of instructions from the Spaniards, but they were fairly independent compared to other mission frontier regions. So that was the plan. And of course, uh, less than a year after they set this thing into motion, and after the uh, large numbers of colonists had passed through the Yuma Crossing, there was this explosive uprising. And uh, in that subsequent events, the, the two colonies were destroyed. And then for a period up to about 1784, the Spanish tried to field armies that would go in and, and uh, recapture the sites and get started again. But it turned out to be too big of a challenge at such a great distance from other resources. And uh, of course, the, the real figure that was behind making those places work was Garces, and Garces was dead. So um, it ended up for naught. And it, because of the failure to secure the Yuma Crossing, it really meant that California, for all intents and purposes, remained an island cut off from the rest of the frontier. And of course, strategically in terms of administrative functions, it led to the transfer of California away from the Provincias Internas to the direct viceroy's control 
in the 1790s. So it was an important event for both Sonora and California in some pretty, pretty dramatic ways. So what you described as really um, is a really interesting thing to bring up uh, in regards to basically the the idea being kind of modified as a result of Spain's entrance into the American Revolution so that they kind of lowered their budget for what they initially wanted as a kind of a full-fledged presidio. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, the original idea, in fact, the, the idea of having a presidio at Yuma had actually been voiced as early as the 1740s, but it was Anza that made it a real possibility because of the reality of getting through there. And he had great diplomatic success with the what the Spaniards thought was the head political leader of the region, a man named Salvador Palma, who had gone with Anza to Mexico City and been baptized there. And, he, and the Spanish thought this guy had relationship with the Quetzal people being like a king, really, which was uh, not an accurate picture. Uh, Palma did not have that much control over the people. And what would almost certainly set off the war was the large number of livestock that had been brought through on the way to the founding of the Pueblo of Los Angeles and Mission Ventura. And so this large herd was brought through under Rivera y Moncada, at the time brought out of retirement, former governor of, of Alta California. But in any event, that group of, of animals ravaged the food resources along the Colorado and uh, apparently probably ended up eating out of the, even the cornfields of the Quetzal, but certainly ate great huge amounts of mesquite. And mesquite was an economically important food substance for the Quetzal. They ate the mesquite pods. I mean, if you've ever tried to eat a mesquite pod, you'd be in trouble because they're hard as rocks. But what they would do is they would process the, uh, the pods and both the vegetal part, the outer kind of almost like a string bean, and the, the hard little nuggety ro- rocks that are the, 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 um, the, the actual seeds can be ground into a, a powder and turned into a kind of a maize cake like, like dish. So it was an important food source to the Kitsan. And that probably was what, what set the thing off. But the Spanish were never able to determine that. One of the most fascinating things about the Quetzal uprising was that the Yumas had really strict rules about handling prisoners. What they didn't do was kill prisoners and they didn't sexually abuse like women prisoners that they took. They had a whole set of religious beliefs that captive people could be used as slaves, but they could not be physically abused in those ways. So after the rebellion took place, a good portion of the population ended up as, as prisoners of the Quetzal. And Pedro Fajes, who was in command of a good chunk of some of these retaliatory expeditions, managed to uh, get those prisoners back. And so there is a huge number of testimonies of these prisoners as to what, what happened to them that have survived in the Archivo in Mexico City and are available on, on microfilm at the Bancroft. Kieran McCarty studied these things extensively, and he translated a few of them that I think ended up in his first book on the history of Tucson Presidio. But in any event, there's a great deal more information in those testimonials of prisoners. So uh, that's one of the more fascinating parts of the story. We have a lot of eyewitness 
accounts, which you usually don't get, especially in a situation where there's been a lot of people killed. But that is the case for the Yuma uprising. Yes, I'm, I am familiar with Kieran McCartney's desert documentary in which there does appear the testimony of really what, what he identifies as one of the few women um, kind of voices that come out of the historical record in northern New Spain. And she was the wife of the commander there at Yuma that had been slain, uh, Islas. And she basically, she basically is telling the story of the martyrdom of Garces and the connection uh, that he had with chocolate. I guess he was uh, encountered hiding and he was having his morning chocolate and they asked uh, him to come out to be basically battered in the head. Um, he said that he would finish his chocolate beforehand. Yeah, Kieran had a lot of great stories about Garces. I, I worked with Garces' papers in the Ramo de Provinces in Terna, some of them. And it was interesting. You could see a point in his life when he had a stroke his writing really got messed up by that when he was serving on the Santa Cruz River, I think maybe at Tim Cackery. But in any event, um, I saw that. And then, of course, Kieran actually, well, he came as close to meeting Garces as anyone can these days. He discovered, I believe it was in Carretero, in a monastery there, a Franciscan house. They had ended up with the remains of Father Garces, which very comfortably fit he said in a shoebox sized container and he was telling the story of garces to the franciscans there and they said hey we got that guy you should see him he's down so down in the basement and in a lot of franciscan houses that's what they did and when a, when a brother passes away they um took them down into what's like a basement crypt and in a coffin and then just let the body deteriorate to the point where it's bones and then remove the bones and usually mark them and stuck them on the shelf so uh, I've seen that in various parts of Latin America. So I, I knew what, what Kieran was talking about right away. But anyways, Kieran was such a jovial guy. Let me tell you, you know, he told his stories about Garces, including that chocolate story to me more than once. And he always did it with the look of a leprechaun in his eyes. He, he would smile and laugh a little bit. And I think that says a lot about who Garces was. I mean, I suspect that Garces was... Garces was widely accused of going native by the other Franciscans. So there was a sense that he kind of gone over the hill and was just a little bit too friendly with the local Indian people and not uh, aloof enough, which uh, remains one of those interesting aspects of these missionaries as individuals. You know, they did have individual personalities and they took different approaches. But Garces' great dream was to put that thing together. And of course, it collapsed while he was there and he saw much of the destruction. I mean, during the attack against um, La Parisima Concepcion, which was right on what's called Fort Yuma Hill, which is right across the river, there's a church there today and a statue of Garces. But in any event, he, he ended up on the roof of the church watching the, the settlement get burned and destroyed when Islas was killed. And then he also saw, almost for certain, Rivera, who was on the other side of the river, in what is today Arizona. And um, Rivera, I think at the time that the, the uprising started, thought it wasn't going to be that serious and that he had had such, so many victories against the Indians, he figured he could take on any number. But the Quetzal were more sophisticated than most Indian groups in the Southwest at fighting. And um, he had about a dozen men with him and they, they kind of made a last stand on the far side of the river. But he was eventually, along with his command, wiped out 
And Fez was able to locate him, the, the exact place where he'd been killed, in part because one of the things that Rivera had with him was the payroll for the California Presidios. Fez found the, a bunch of the coins and things where it was pretty clear that's where, where it had been. And it, it, it sounds like they probably threw up their saddles and things to try to form a, a barrier. But as I said, the Khaetan were far more sophisticated than most Indian groups. Certainly in, in California, they, uh, they regularly divided men into groups and, and based on weapons. So they had groups of archers and they had groups of clubmen. And they apparently could move them around the battlefield. This is all similar to what you see in the ancient um, civilizations in like the Mediterranean, but you don't see it among native people so much. Probably the, of course, their close relatives included the Kamaya and the Kumyai, and Kumyai being in San Diego, the Kamaya in the mountains, and the Caton on the Colorado River. They were all um, very closely related and, and, and behaved in similar ways in warfare and things. And they were much more um, serious threat than a lot of the Indians that the Spanish confronted in California. I, I, I wouldn't say they were as sophisticated as the Apaches or the Comanches, but they were as sophisticated as the Tohon O'odham. They were, they were they're quite similar in terms of their fighting style, but they were a lot more sophisticated. And there was a lot of serious warfare over territory fought on the Colorado River, quite apart from the Spanish being there. So, um, different tribal groups pushed down into that area. And, and Yuma was a prime location that you wanted to control because of its natural strategic importance. Now, eventually, during the retaliatory expeditions, one of the most interesting things is that the Spanish, one of the big problems they had was they kept trying to force a general engagement with the Quetzan. So what their idea was to get all the troops together and, and get to where the Quetzan were and then have a battle. But the Quetzan were particularly good at slipping away and crossing the river. So the Spanish time and again ended up, they could see the Quetzan on the other side of the river, but they couldn't, couldn't confront them. So um, Philippe de Nevi, when he was there during the, the last of these retaliatory expeditions, he decided to run a cable across, which is where the interstate crosses the, the Colorado today. So I don't know, I guess you could call it the first bridge across the Colorado River after a fashion. But um, in any event, I think they, the way they used it, they used it as a, as a ferry system. It, I don't think there were people actually like going out on a bridge. But nonetheless, that was how he was able to cross the river and they were able to get a little better handle at it. But fighting the Khaetan was a nightmare. Uh, sometimes they would withdraw to the south and the Spanish troops were mostly mounted. And, you know, this was a marshland, which is terrible for horses. And, it's not practical for horses to go into a marsh to chase Indians. And um, sometimes they would head off north, but that would draw the Spanish then into potential conflicts with other groups like the Mojaves and, the, and other Indian and tribal entities, which were just as dangerous as the Quetzal. So the Spanish were never able to really pull it together and win a decisive victory. They were, however, able to negotiate uh, prisoner exchanges and the uh, Quetzal were willing to make some deals with them. And so the crossing never was completely closed. That's, a, that's, that's one of the things we talk about. It wasn't as if the Indians strategically blocked anyone from going through there. So there were definitely people throughout the late colonial period and into the Mexican Republic era that would get to California, get to Sonora, going through the Yuma crossing. 
but it was always dangerous because you never knew when you were going to confront potential Indian military force or just raiders and people like that because it was you were really exposed, especially when you were crossing the river. And what what happened to Palma through all of this? You know, you mentioned him, the fact that he had been baptized, brought to Mexico City, you know, given a full Spanish military uniform. What 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 was his role in, in this uprising? Well, the the figure that's most apparent in the uprising is a, uh, I believe he was a Yuma, a Quezon person, who had been captured at an early age and taken to Altar. And he'd been raised in a Spanish household there as a servant. And he had nothing good to say about the Spaniards. And he seems to have been the one that really was pushing this. I think Salvador Palma probably didn't want to even engage in the rebellion, but he found himself in a situation where the um, Iberians' unintentional destruction of all these food resources really pushed him in that way. He definitely participated. He was later identified in some of the fighting because he ended up with uh, Rivera's military cockade and, um, and I think his shield. So he was recognized, but then after the 1783 or so, he's never heard of again. So we don't know what exactly happened to him. But he probably continued as a tribal leader. Part of the problem, of course, the Spanish had again and again was that they assumed that these leaders had a lot more authority than they actually had. And the Quetzal, the Kamaya, and the Kamaya are also notoriously democratic. So it could well be that it was really out of his control. But in any event, he seems to have survived the war. And as a whole, like I said, while it was disaster for the Spaniards, I think that it's no question a source of some pride among the Quetzal that they were able to push this missionary enterprise away. And of course, it led to huge arguments among the Spaniards as to why it had all gone wrong. Tito de Croix ended up becoming viceroy of Peru. So he left rather abruptly before the wars had actually terminated. And so he was, he was always considered beyond reproach for his behavior. But the general consensus in California among the Franciscans was that this was a terrible mistake not to have put the Franciscans in charge of the Indians in a more direct way. And I think the military generally had a feeling that it was a bad idea to try to mix presidios with missions. It just didn't work well. Uh, one of the things we know was required by Croy, but was not carried out comprehensively, was the creation of fortifications at both La Parisima and at San Pedro y San Pablo. There's no evidence of any fortifications at La Parisima. Now, the story of San Pedro y San Pablo is a fascinating in part because it was mismarked on a colonial map as being south of La Parisima Concepcion at a place that was probably called the San Pablo Crossing, which was at Pilot Knob which would make it literally on the border of the United States and Mexico today. And many historians up to the 1950s thought that's where San Pedro y San Pablo was. And so late in the 19th century, Zephyrin Engelhardt, the famous Franciscan historian of the California missions, was assigned to Yuma. And he was poking around. He wrote a book. It's a very popular kind of thing, not like his more sophisticated studies of the other California missions. But he did write a book about the Yuma enterprise. But he, he literally was taken by some Quetzal 
up to the actual location of San Pedro y San Pablo. And what he found there was evidence of a burned stockade. He recovered a few artifacts and he eventually was persuaded that he was, it couldn't be San Pedro de San Pablo because that was supposedly at Pilot Knob to the south of Yuma. So he kind of stopped talking about it. But it, it is pretty clear from the, his letter correspondence that he actually had found that site and that there was some evidence for a stockade. One of the amazing things that recovered, uh, one of the Franciscans at Santa Barbara, a guy named uh, Timothy Arthur, came to me once and he, he was in charge of some of the things that various Franciscans kind of had left at the mission over the years. And he had what was pretty clearly a class, probably from a, a book, could have been a, a hymnal or prayer book or something. And um, he showed it to me, he said, do you know what this is? And I said, well, I started talking about it. He said, yeah, because Engelhart found this at this place up the river on, on near Yuma. And then I realized it probably was the, one of the very few things we have from San Pedro y San Pablo. Now, of course, the river has changed, so it no longer has the fords where it used to be. But it's pretty well known that the location is at a place called Pothole Cemetery. And it was still pretty intact into the oh, I know, second decade of the 20th century when they built the All-American Canal during the um, time of the Mexican Revolution. When they built it, it unfortunately went right through the site. And as a result, there's about three and a half meters of gravel and rock on top of the Pothole Cemetery and whatever was left of San Pedro de San Pablo. But I've been to the site. It's close to a marker. There is a local marker. But one of the reasons why there hasn't been more archaeology and things is that both of the sites are basically on um, tribal land. So the Winter Haven kicks on reservation and occupies the main site of La Parisima. Now, searching on that hill a number of times, I think I found in all my visits there one piece of tin enameled ware of Maiolica, just one piece. But then, you know, people were only there in, in the occupation for about a year. So it's not surprising there wasn't tons of stuff, you know, to be found. But I, I think if you were determined, you would find more there. Uh, one of the things that Heitzelman, when they came before they built Fort Yuma, he found the ruins at La Parisima Concepcion, and he dug up the footings to reuse them in the buildings he constructed at Fort Yuma. So we have a pretty good understanding of where all that stuff was. There's not a whole lot there today interpreting it. And so was Fort Yuma basically built on top of the site as well or adjacent, the Heitzelman's Fort Yuma? Yeah, hey, Eitzelman's Ward is built on, it's really the, down the ridge a little bit. It looks like La Parisima Concepcion was literally where there's a church that the Franciscans built in the early 20th century. It's called St. Thomas Indian School. But in any event, there's a statue of Garces there. And that is probably the location which was the center. And it was probably a pretty informal sem settlement. It sounds like there were 10 or 12 buildings there. There was a chapel and a church. We know that Garces spent much of the uprising on top of that church. And of course, he escaped from Yuma. Some of the local Kitsan people tried to save him when he was eventually encountered in Gandhi. The only other settlements that existed in the area was about halfway between San Pedro y San Pablo and La Purisima Concepcion was a place that was called La Capilla which was some sort of little chapel, but it was in the flats in the low country and no traces of it have survived at all. 
both um, La Purisimo Concepcion and uh, San Pedro y San Pablo were built on little bluffs, you know. And of course, the one in, at uh, La Purisimo isn't that little. It's pretty pretty glaring. And the, the, the final stand of Rivera y Moncada, you say that you've also visited that site uh, where it's suspected he made that final stand? Yeah, I was I was pretty lucky one time. Mark Santiago, who's an author who wrote about the, uh, I think his book's The Yuma Massacre, he uh, was a park ranger at that time that worked at Yuma. And I went and visited him once, and he took me around and showed me places that he thought things had happened. And most of them, it seemed to me, were pretty pretty strongly identifiable. And I don't think there's much doubt that Rivera died on the bluff directly opposite La Parisima Concepcion. I think from a military point of view, he retreated up there and he felt quite secure that he could survive there. Of course, his big mistake was assuming that the Quetzal would behave like other Indians he'd confronted in battle. Most of the Indians he'd confronted, he'd fought in California where almost all his Indian fighting had taken place. And most of the California groups waged warfare in a, in a kind of skirmishing kind of way where a, a group of their most important warriors would kind of come out and shoot arrows and throw javelins at the, at the Spaniards. And um, of course, many of the Indian groups we're talking about, even the Chumash, who had a fairly sophisticated material culture, didn't have shields and um, weren't very astute in the use of weapons. And of course, this was terribly different from the Quetzal. They, they, um, they understood, I think, most of the principles that would have put them on a pretty equal footing to the Spaniards. And they, they had even already started using horses by that point, even before Anza reached Yuma. In fact, he's greeted by Indians on horseback. So the Indians are starting to use horses in warfare. And these dense bodies of uh, club-wielding, shield-armed Indians would have been pretty pretty lethal. So I think he was quite surprised at how determined the Indians were. And by the time he'd figured out this, these Indians weren't like the other Indians he fought, it was it was too late to to escape. Now he could have. What would have been logical was he could have taken his command and, and headed for the hills because he watched them destroy La Purisima Concepcion the day before. So he could have gotten away. He could have made it off to Tucson or Altar. I don't doubt it. And eventually there were people that, that got to both San Diego and to Tucson and to Altar with stories about what had happened. One of the most eerie stories is um, the San Diego group that, that went out to see what was going on, which was I don't know, a body of a dozen men. They approached La Parisima Concepcion and the Quetzal left them alone. And when they got into the settlement, one of the things that Quetzal did was they decided not to bury any of the Iberian dead. So the settlement was full of dead bodies that were pretty, you know, pretty badly decayed at that point. But you get this image of coming into this ghost-like place with all these dead bodies all around. And then um, once the Spanish had encountered that, the Quetzal attacked. And so there was a running battle across good chunk of the Southern California desert as those guys escaped in the direction of San Diego. So it's quite a story. In fact, it's a shame that there isn't more of the story told in Yuma or in any museum because it's kind of fallen through the, through the cracks. 
you would think there would be more there than a bronze statue, but that's about all there is, is that statue of Father Garces. And I think most people that see it don't even know what it's about. And of course, the St. Thomas Indian School is a, is a 20th century construction. It's not a historic building. But some of the footings of La Parisma are probably still in use there among the buildings of the Fort Yuma complex on that adjacent hill. And the Heinzelman account, um, is there any, any other details that he mentions besides the, the foundations that are, are worth noting? I think he, he, he noted the size, which were they, they were kind of typical size, you know, three or four meters at most uh, structures. And my bed, and they also appear to have been fork pole constructions. I think they're, that's mentioned in one of the documents, or Canaria, which is, you know, a way of holding up the roof which would probably have been a thatched roof or an azotea flat earthen roof. And uh, it's, it's basically hauled up by upright poles that are embedded in adobe bricks. So, um, and we know that they had footings because the footings are mentioned as, as part of Heitzelman, you know, digging them out and using them. And of course, at the time Heitzelman was there, there was very limited knowledge about artifacts and things. So they wouldn't have known a Spanish object if they encountered it. But it was a rel- I don't think there's much doubt that it was a relatively uh, superficial occupation. You know, they weren't there that long. They didn't have that much time to uh, create trash features and things. But I, I, I don't doubt, too, that if you actually went there and looked hard enough, you would find a lot more than um, than's been recovered so far. I'm not sure that Kitsan would ever want you to do that, but they might. They have a big casino there now. It's probably what it's more famous for is the casino than anything else. And so was the idea for the settlement to be to be supplied by sea or by land, um, you know, kind of its unique position there? Well, it was entirely going to be self-sufficient was the idea. And and so, the of course, Croy was at this point very much involved with the struggle with Junipero Serra over the control of the missions. And what, what Croy wanted to do was to take all the control of what were called the temporalities, that is to say the daily life of the Indian communities and take that away from the Franciscans so that the Franciscans would only have been in charge of spiritual instructions. Otherwise, the military would work with the Indians in their villages and they would largely establish commercial relations. So the idea was that they would have uh, trading posts so this was actually carried out to a very limited extent in Santa Barbara. And Santa Barbara Mission was founded, much to the dismay of Junipero Serra. So this is kind of what Croy had on his agenda. And so I think he went along with Garces in setting the settlement up in part because he, uh, he thought it might be a place that he could move on to this, what he saw as a military reform. Of course, what, what Croy had in mind was transitioning the missions uh, frontier into something that was more akin to the commercial relationships that the Spaniards had in the Mississippi Valley. Because remember, as of 1763, all of uh, what was French Louisiana had basically become a Spanish possession. And so the Spanish were more and more aware of those kind of commercial based um, trading post styles of interaction. And you, uh, you can really see it in other, some places, like at Nootka, up in British Columbia, where the Spanish established an outpost. It, there was no mission there. There was no attempt even to, to missionize the Indian people there. It was, it was basically 
a commercial enterprise and a Spanish garrison. So I, I think that that Croy would have been quite happy to have seen that. But the Franciscans then will use the argument that the Yuma crossing was a disaster because putting the soldiers in charge and putting civilians in charge was a, was a doomed policy. And I think they were able to keep that argument going all the way up into the 20th century. I mean, Engelhardt's still making the same argument in, in his books that the disaster should be blamed on Tiro de Croix. But I, I must say that in the juntas de guerra that were held in Mexico City by the Viceroy and in all the papers relating to Croix that I've seen, he was never blamed for it as, as a disaster or any even unfortunate situation. He was really uh, kind of applauded as a, as a genius in organizing the frontier and, he, and, his, and his attempts to reform the presidio system and everything were viewed in very positive terms. And of course, that's, that, that was really the, the key to his success as becoming a viceroy in, in Peru. He was an interesting man. He, of course, part of the, the Croix clan, which included the Marques de Croix, uh, Matias, who was viceroy at the time California was founded, and uh, was very close to the Galvez clique at the court. And of course, he was, I guess you could call him a foreigner in as much as he was Flemish. He was a flamenco, uh, quite literally. So he was Flemish. Um, and spoke French, which um, would have meant, I think, it, it probably was not a not a bit of a distraction with so many people in California being Catalan, who have also a great affinity to Fr the French language and culture, um, including Junipero Serra. You know, Serra, growing up, did not speak Spanish much. He spoke Catalan. And uh, he surrounded himself with Franciscans, mostly on his staff that were, were Catalan. So, you know, we think of California as a Spanish-speaking province, but a good number of the people that were there were Catalan, and of course there were large numbers of uh, Basques, Vizcayunos, uh, there as well, and, and so it was really a, a hodgepodge language community. And uh, culturally would have been, I think, an interesting thing, but all that, all that dynamics is important to understanding these guys. Now, one of the most wonderful things that have survived from that period is uh, the private papers and diaries of, of the chaplain of the Provincia Centenas, a certain Father Murphy, a.k.a. Father Morphy. And uh, he was stationed in Arispe, and he kept this personal diary, which is full of social aspects that you almost never see recorded. And studying that, it was, it was translated or transcribed and, and published in the 1950s in uh, Monterrey, Mexico. It's really interesting because at one point it was going to be published in translation by the University of Oklahoma Press, but for whatever reason that didn't happen. But it is one of the most marvelous collections of all kinds of rumors and, and gossip about the frontier that I've ever seen. I mean, and, and, and one of the people that shit stands up in this, of course, is Tierno de Croix. And what you see is a guy that was a, a gentleman um, and, and very much a polymath in the Enlightenment tradition, but also a man that is not beyond being corrupted by um, bribes. 
And so I, there was one point where this one particular officer that had been in charge of, of Terranate Presidio was one of the bad boys of the Presidio command in the north. And I'm almost sure he bribed his way back into getting back into the field. There's really strong evidence of that. But that's the kind of thing you can see in those private diaries that you never get from the official narratives and accounts. So, but he got along well with Don Teodoro, no question about it. It's funny, he talks about, at the, for example, the priory in uh, Arispe, he had a problem one day with a rattlesnake that got into the priory. He had to kill the rattlesnake. And, and of course, one of the things I used to, I used to kid Don Garate, because one of the commanders at that time on the frontier was a guy named Garate, which maybe was related to Don in some way. But um, I remember he used to put notation, desayuno con Garate. <laughs> to have breakfast with Garate was a pretty common thing. And he talks about Roque de Medina, who's another important inspector of this time period. And he was a, he was kind of a one command level below Tierra de Croix. But anyways, he inspected the procedures and stuff. And you get this picture of a, maybe a bit of a martinet. He's like, he seems to go for very official sorts of things. But it turns out that he was a ladies' man. And he, in, in, in reading about life in the Rispe, it's quite clear from um, Father Murphy's account that he was a, you know, he was kind of a dashing character that was getting the, the ladies all interested. So that reality has been lost on us because so few of those private papers have survived. But I kind of think if we keep looking, we'll find more of them. But Father Murphy's account is really something else. He's well known for his history of Texas and his narrative of the, the, uh, the diary of going on the frontier as he finally gets to Orispe. But to be honest with you, I think that the diary he wrote once he was there is far more entertaining, even if it's less uh, official. It's far more entertaining. It's really something. But that whole social life, is something that's been kind of lost lost to us, but it's there if you look hard enough. It's like Rivera y Moncada, he's another enigmatic figure. And of course you have to wonder about, of all the people to go and to try to create kind of like revenge for Rivera, the irony of Pedro Fajas, who he didn't get along with at all, you know, is, is pretty intense. It's just ironic and intense. Plus, um, some of the most savage fighting involving the Catalonian volunteers took place out there at the Yuma Crossing in the retaliatory expeditions. So you get repeated examples of them mustering the troops and you can just see them all gathering up and forming lines and sitting out with their flintlocks to mow down the Quetzal and the Quetzal being dangerous and fighting back. And the sort of images of the Spanish horsemen getting fouled up in the marsh is also a fascinating one. There are other places where Spanish had similar problems. For example, the Indians in Central California used to retreat into the, the Bakersfield area where there was a huge, Los, Los Tulares it was called, huge swampy, marshy, lakey area. And um, for the same reason, it was really hard for the mounted Iberian troops to go in after them. But it was an important moment in the history of the frontier and its consequences of the failure to... Um, to make the, the crossing work were, were profound. Like I said, uh, it ultimately led to California becoming not only isolated and logistically uh, like an island, but it also led to the transfer of the command. And when the Preventus Internas were reorganized by uh, Bernardo de Galvez, he, he basically cuts 
California out of the Provencius Internas and puts it directly under vice regal control because uh, it no longer makes sense to, to try to control or command it from, from Arispe or anywhere in the, and by that point, the, uh, the capital of the Provencius Internas moved to uh, Chihuahua City, but it still didn't make sense to, you know, to try to control it from, from the east, so to speak. And of course, there aren't that many examples of an Indian nation successfully resisting Europeans that way. I would love to see a statue of Salvador Palma, you know, standing there in Yuma. That would be a wonderful thing, and it could easily be done. But um, no one has been inclined to put one up. But it would be, it would be worth having just to remember the uprising. And Jack, one, one last question. Do we know what Anza thought about the massacre, the, the, the kind of the, this, this whole situation after having opened up the road? I know he was the governor of New Mexico now at this time. Do we, do we know what he thought about this whole situation? He was in and out of Arispe many times during this time, the period after the, the uprising, you know, um, before his death there. And I've never read anything that was specifically about it. But in general, John Kessel, I think, found some letters that Anza was inclined to think ill of the Franciscans compared to his thoughts about the Jesuits. Don Garati always thought it was because of the Basque connection with the Jesuits. But in any event, um, he didn't care for Garces. He bickered with Garces all the time when they were out there together. There's one famous episode that Anza had been given an astrolabe to determine his position for mapping. And at some point, Garces took the astrolabe and went over a sand dune and was playing with it, but he couldn't figure out how to make it work. So, um, but this kind of petty disagreements seem to be really in the forefront. It's, it's hard to know. I mean, one of the questions I have is just what was the character of Anza like, um, not only um, as a commander, but during those expeditions. And uh, I have to tell you, much of what I have seen people interpret, either artistically or in terms of descriptions, tend to make you think that the Anza expeditions were like a cattle drive. But I don't think so. My guess is that Anza was very, very much a, a military guy. And my guess is he ran the operation as a military operation, which would have meant that he would have run, for example, in the organization of the, the people on the trail, there would have been a vanguard, a main body, and a rear group, and that there would have been flankers out, you know, maybe a mile or so on each side of the main group, all of which were military precautions, which were absolutely normal in fighting. And of course, one of the wonderful sources that we, we probably should talk about on another occasion, but it's full of insights into Anza, the military man, are the papers that relate to the Elizondo expedition. Um, the Elizondo expedition to the Cerro Prieto, which is like halfway between Hermosillo and, and Wymas, was one of the great epic battles of, of the colonial era. And the um, Domingo Elizondo, who was in command of that operation, along with Jose de Galvez, who quite literally went mad during the expedition. Um, but anyways, Elizondo came thinking that Anza was like a local militia guy. But before too long, he started to respect him. And what you see is little by little, 
he starts to think like Anza, and you can see it. And Anza, the, the soldier, gets a lot of explanation, and you see a guy that understood desert warfare. I mean, that, that's one of the hardest things for people to, to grasp now, I think, is that to actually fight Indians in the desert, you really have two opponents. You have the Indians and you have the desert because the desert will kill you faster than the Indians will. And so in order to be successful, you, you really have to know what you're doing. And in order to, to, to end up dead, it's very easy to do. And Anza was the first and foremost, that, that was one thing I disagreed with the Park Service about because I was on the um, Secretary of Interior's advisory board when they were putting the trail together. And I said, well, yes, yes, Anza was this great explorer, but he was a soldier. And I think too much has been made of his diplomatic abilities and not enough of his fighting abilities because he was, you know, he was an Indian fighter. And, and he, he was a guy that did not care for the Apaches. I mean, they, they killed his father and he grew up, you know, at Fronteras. He, he grew up there really as a, as a military cadet. And he, he, um, he spent his life fighting Indians. I don't think there's any doubt that he, he was a soldier first and foremost. And, and so whether we're talking about how he organized on the trail or his disputes with Franciscans or his, his uh, role as governor of New Mexico or as a um, commander at Tubac, I think you have to keep in mind that this guy is an Indian fighter. And um, this area of the world was extremely dangerous and was very much involved in, in, a, in an extremely desperate conflict and warfare. But in any event, the Yuma Crossing is an important chapter that doesn't get much coverage in history books. I, you, you'd be amazed at the number of accounts I've read of California that are, that, that are articles or books even written that say things like Spanish colonial California or you know, the archaeology of Spanish California, and they won't even mention Yuma. It's like it didn't exist. And of course, the Yuma Crossing's history goes back to to the time of Kino. Kino, you know, uh, literally tromped around that area too. And there, there were, there was a constant low-level involvement of of Spaniards from Sonora in the Yuma area. It was never completely out of touch. Sometimes that involved simply raiding over there. Sometimes it involved building settlements. Sometimes it involved taking troops through, you know, the crossing. Not all of it's well documented, but enough of it's there to know that things were quite, quite alive there in terms of, of the those relationships. And also, even the the naval arm of the Coronado expedition, no, the Alarcon, his kind of history there. Well, yeah, I mean, he came up the Colorado, called it the Rio Tizon. And uh, we're not sure how far north the river was navigable, but it is extremely likely that he got north of Yuma. It's extremely likely that he got beyond Pilot Knob. One of the sad things is there was a time back in the 1970s when a, there was a huge historical park proposed for Yuma. It's going to be called Yuma Crossing Regional Park, I think. And I saw the, uh, the blueprints for what they were hoping for. And of course, it was a really grand thing, but there were going to be areas set aside to interpret the missions had been there. And there was there was going to be a whole area for 16th century exploration. And um, 
they were going to, I think they were going to build at least two paddle boats that would be replica paddle boats sitting, sitting there. Um, I mean, it was really going to be something. But as far as I know, that park plan has never really gone forward. Uh, part of it, I think, is because the Cape Town Nation, you know, they have their casino and they kind of have their own thing now. And, and partly because I just think Arizona State Parks didn't have the funding that would have made it possible to take some of that land. Although, ironically, if you go to Yuma today, much of it is still unused. Much of it is just sort of sitting out there derelict. A lot more could be done. But at the very least, you could have a bronze statue of Salvador Palma, you know, uh, or some kind of remembrance of the Quetzon resistance. Uh, something like that would be kind of a nice thing to have. And it would make Yuma a little more distinct. I think one of the big problems Yuma has is there's no major university there. There was a major university campus. I think some of these things might have come, come through. But it's always been kind of a backwater, which is a shame, uh, because historically, it certainly wasn't one. Well, th thank you so much, Jack. Um, this has been really an illuminating, fascinating window into the, the past, the lesser known past of the Southwest and the real strategic importance of Yuma and its history. Uh, so I want to thank you. And yeah, I agree. Let's talk about the Elizondo expedition, Seri Wars there in, in central Sonora along the coast of the Sea of Cortez. I think that would be a great uh, next episode. So let's definitely plan for that. Okay, well, well, we'll we'll do that then. We'll talk about the Elizondo expedition and its implications, because over the years that was another, you know, that was what Kieran's uh, dissertation was about that time period. So he was the one that turned me on to a lot of the documents, and, and because it was so important, let me tell you, there are so many Elizondo related documents. You, you know, if you published them all, it, it would add up to hundreds of pages of text. I mean, it's really amazing because so much money was being spent. Um, but it was a turning point. And you get a lot of the guys that are important later, like Bernardo de Galvez. He's in the story. And of course, he was the nephew of Jose, who was who went, as I said, nuts during the expedition. And then, of course, you've got Gaspar de Portola, who I became convinced, basically from Kieran, that he was, he was such a jerk that Elizondo made him governor of California just to get rid of him you know, just to get rid of him. And there's a lot of evidence, by the way, that Portola was a jerk. I mean, there's just a, a lot of evidence of, of him being less than a fighting kind of a guy. But in any event, uh, that human part of the story isn't well known. And the, and the fighting part of the story is fabulous, too, in terms of just these epic battles and campaigning all over the place. One of my favorite stories is how, you know, the beginnings of Wymus the Spanish had, had set up a stockade and the Indians attacked and they were nearly wiped out. But that was, the, that was the beginning of the education of Elizondo and desert fighting. But, you know, and of course the truth of the matter is that the campaign didn't really succeed. Nobody wanted to say that. So in 1769, they declared victory and went home. That's how the campaign ended more than anything else. But, um, but having said that, at least they didn't all end up dead like they did at Yuma. So uh, Elizondo deserves some credit for that. But so much of important events in Sonoran history took place during that campaign. It was, a, it was another turning point. Well, we'll look forward to kind of jumping from this turning point to that turning point in, in the next, next episode. We want to thank you again and thank our listeners. 
we're right at a one hour mark. And I really appreciate this really amazing capsule you just provided us with, Jack. So thank you very much. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. You can find more information by visiting us at borderlandia.org. We are a binational organization committed to building public understanding of the borderlands. Thank you.